This is Adam Hansen, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? I am Adam Hansen. I'm uh, one of the partners and the VP of Innovation at Ideas to Go. We uh, we're innovation folks. <laughs> well, and so are we, which is awesome. So I have to tell you something, Adam. Before we dive in a bit more into everything and what we're going to talk about today, I have to tell you that a couple years ago, I had an idea. I was just coming off of publishing the Mist of Creativity. I was kind of looking around for what do I want to write about next, etc. Uh, and, and the mousetrap myth in my book, the idea that uh, people will willingly accept um, your new creative, innovative idea, and in reality, usually they hate it, had, you know, was, was banging around in my mind. And it made me think of like, okay, well, this is kind of an example um, of, a, of a bias. I wonder what else is out there. And of course, you know, this and this was before the, uh, the current state of our lack of political discourse, especially on social media. In particular, I zeroed in on confirmation bias. Um, but then I sort of thought, like, boy, wouldn't it be good to do, like, a book that just kind of collected all of the negative thinking, like, the, the biases and blocks and things that we do individually in teams that prevent us from being more creative uh, and innovative. And I didn't end up going down that route. And now uh, I'm glad I did because I got that book anyway. Like, you know, you, know, you, 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 you sort of write a book because you want to see that book in the world. Well, in your case, like I ended up picking a different idea out of my like list of different ideas, but I get to see that book anyway. And it's as good, if not better, um, than I would have read. It's this cool little book. It's, it's got a blue cover, which is cool too. You know, I like... Um, blue covers. I, instead of a monkey, you have fish, and it's called "Outsmart Your Instincts: How the Behavioral Innovation Approach Drives Your Company Forward." And it's essentially, if if missive creativity was about myth busting, this is about bias busting. Yeah, and and your description of you know you kind of you write a book because the idea that the message doesn't get out there somehow. I mean, that was really it. I, I was just like, really, is this? How is this not already a thing? We'd better get it out there. And uh, so we started noticing a few years ago that what was coming out of behavioral science and what we were already doing had some really important overlaps. And so we just said, well, let's just kind of sew this all up and, you know, let's tell the story. And so it was, it, once we kind of checked that to make sure that the, the eight cognitive biases that we're talking about you know, really are 
kind of key um, features and impediments and, and really parts of, uh, of what we see regularly tripping up innovation unnecessarily. Uh, and then we checked what were we indeed already doing to mitigate them and making sure and stress testing that, not just doing that because we wanted it to exist and we hoped that we had now this cool story that we suspected might exist. Uh, then we said, yeah, this is, let's do it. We've got it. So thank you so much. It, 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 I think it was kind of, for those of us who were interested by such matters, uh, I think something like this was more or less inevitable. And it, it's, it's, it's kind of fun that we could help shepherd that in. And there's still more work to do on it, obviously, because we want innovation to be the joyful, great experience that, that we really believe it should be. And um, we want to help more of our clients and more people get there. Yeah, totally. And and part of that, that first step is sort of getting through those biases. And I want to dive into them. But before we do, I kind of want to talk about the big the big one, right? Which you, you kind of talk about this in the introduction, but it's sort of, in my opinion, the biggest misconception about our thinking, in particular our creative thinking, um, because it applies to all of it, not just this subtle little bias, is that we are that sort of, rational, logical, ordered, structured, critical thinkers that we really are. We're, we're actually sort of far more emotional and far mes- less logical than any of us really realize. Yeah, it was important for uh, the folks in the Enlightenment, you know, a couple hundred centuries ago to start thinking of, of man as being this, fairly rash- this very rational um, you know, highly structured, ordered being. Th- that lens, that approach, that frame really brought about some great things. And uh, that is true of us at certain times and uh, given certain circumstances. But, but overall, that's not really the case. And, and bringing some uh, awareness to it and just acknowledging what really is, is is obviously very helpful. And the insight on it was, hey, Economists and all your models, uh, you, you talk about the rational actor, and uh, yet you keep talking about all your people, uh, all the people in your life as if they're idiots when it comes to economic matters. So, you know, what's the deal? And, uh, and, and so once you kind of just kind of grapple with the fact that humans really are, first and foremost, pretty irrational creatures, but that there's a reason behind that, and you can understand why that irrationality emerges, and it does so in some pretty some pretty clear ways. Once you bring some awareness to it, some diligence then to work on it, and a, a, a framework that can kind of guide you through it, then some really cool stuff can start to happen. And then once you realize that it really is just about being human, and it's not about certain humans or anything like that, then with that comes, hopefully, some humility some sense of humor about it, and you realize that we're all in it together. So let's just kind of you know lock arms and you know and, and work on it together. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's been one of the biggest uh, things that keeps this perpetuating, right? So, you know, this is not the first book to deal with this issue. Dan Ariely had a fantastic work on how we are irrational in predictable ways. You have uh, Daniel Kahneman and Thinking Fast and Slow. You have a multitude of, of sources out there with this idea that uh, we don't think as well as we think we do. The problem I find with all of them is they're in such sort of an academic tone, in such an argumentative, they make a case for this fact, that you begin to read it 
as if it afflicts other people, right? And you're looking at the, at the ways other people are irrational. And so you're exactly right. I think one of the solutions to that is taking a more like, look, this is this affects everybody. Let's can we just laugh about it? That we're we're all sort of uh, a little bit irrational, or or all of our rationality is bounded, right? Um, and then maybe knowing that, then we can actually start to to combat some of these things. But it starts with that realization that we all suffer from it. And really, I feel like the only way to get to that realization for everyone is to be able to be lighthearted about it. Well, that's right. And and as we got into it and started to learn more about it and really then, again, you know, real world test it and look at what was going on in our own work, uh, you know, at certain points we just thought, well, holy smokes, it's amazing that we can get anything done. <laughs> because it, <laughs> There's, you know, as we're looking at all this, there's very little to predict that humans could actually be, actually be functional. But uh, so, yay, human spirit! And so, we're real champions of that as well. And and so, there are all these other wonderful capabilities that we have that we want to liberate, and we just want to get these biases out of the way, so that we really can do that, and there can be some real flourishing and everything. Uh, but in order to do, do so, you have to get real about it. And so as I've gone into this, if anything, I just see my own um, weirdness at, at, at a more granular level. And every day I catch myself going, oh, yeah, I was about to do that, wasn't I? <laughs> and so it's, that's really the way to go about this. And, and humility, curiosity, and uh, a, a sense of, of play, we believe, once you're aware of this and start to get to work on it, those are the three things that we have in mind for people for really then proceeding forward. Hmm, yeah. So let's dive into some of those um, those biases. Let's start with actually the, the first one that you kind of uncover in the book, which is, I think it's probably, I don't, I'm not familiar with the history of this research, but it's probably one of the first ones that we sort of stumble across Um it ties into loss aversion and a couple other concepts that we know about, but the negativity bias, this idea that um, threats uh, and things that are bad that could happen to us, we feel more than we do potential good things that could happen to us. And so that negativity, we always sort of skew to the negative uh, because it's in our, and it's in our genes. It's in our training. Yeah. uh, Losses loom large uh, in us because they had to for our ancestors to survive. Uh, for those of your uh, listeners who are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, we didn't have to worry about the high-order needs if we didn't survive. And uh, when survival, you know, years and years ago was really the big win, uh, those who were best at um, responding to threat, when existential threat really was something that preoccupied, rightfully so, more people daily, you know, so much more than, than we do than we experience now, then the people who actually made it were those who, who really were the most risk averse. And so, you know, we, we say that we come by this very honestly. We are the descendants of the savants of risk aversion. And so we need to understand that's our starting point. It's not like uh, we we are blessed with this great kind of endowment of <laughs> necessarily of curiosity and wonder and everything. No, unfortunately, those folks uh, who didn't have as finely honed a sense of threat and risk and taking very decisive, quick action, in fact, even better, who didn't have baked in so instinctively pre-thought that you just got the heck out of the way of all that 
and you worried about thinking about it later when some safe distance had been established between you and, and whatever could have even been perceived as a threat, you know, uh, those were the folks who got to stick around to pass on their DNA. And so it wasn't that long ago that things like curiosity and everything were seen as really kind of bad things and naughty children were the curious types and curiosity killed the cat. And we have all, even today, we have some of these aphorisms. Uh, and so it's easy to understand why negativity bias became such a, such a kind of a key part of our cognition even now. But we need to bring some awareness to it so we can do something about it and understand that our starting point is not neutral. It's negative. And bad, uh, according to the research, bad just does feel stronger than good um, as a starting place. You know, that's a really good way to look at it that I've never sort of thought of before, but that idea that, okay, the center is not zero, the center is negative three, right, on the scale between good and bad. And as soon as you, you realize that, that you're starting from negative, you're not starting from even, I mean, that sort of destroys, again, the, the we think in logical, rational ways argument, right? Because if we, start, if we were thinking in logical, rational ways, we'd be starting at zero, but in reality, we're starting already on the negative, so we're going to have to work harder to get into the positive. Well, that's true. And then the tricky part, and this to me just continues to blow my mind in this vein, is the other piece of it is then, and you can also see why this also developed, is that negativity appears profound. And we give smart points to those who can most quickly eviscerate you know, any new idea. And they get, we give them smart points. It seems adult. It seems businesslike. It seems like just like so on the, on the money. And people have built careers around it. Well, I mean, I think that's everyone who's ever been a talking head on on cable news. Their whole, I mean, all they do is jump on and criticize whatever was just announced. Doesn't matter who announced it or for what, you know, because we project that. Uh, oh, you must be smart because you know the flaws in that argument. Well, or maybe you're so not smart you can't think positive. <laughs> well, and so the idea that negativity is both reflexive and appears profound. Those two things should not coincide. <laughs> that shouldn't be. That should not be the starting point. And that again just highlights our irrationality. Uh, but we need to again bring some awareness to it so we can do something about it. And we need to figure out, you know, smart, emotionally intelligent ways to to work with these folks who just you know regularly dine out on negativity. Uh, and and. We we have a framework for doing that. <laughs> Do you think too? So I've always thought that negativity bias is a bit related to another bias you're talking about the book, which is this sort of uh, bias towards the status quo, an idea that sort of we don't like to change. Which is it's kind of at the heart of what I uh, unpacked a bit in the mousetrap myth too. But it but I think it stems from the negativity bias because if what we're doing is sort of working, then when we look at any reason to change, we're more likely to see the negative things that could happen from that change as more uh, feasible than the positive things, right? Because we skew to the negative. When we make a change, it's more likely we're going to see all the ways that change could destroy us instead of grow us. Yeah, and we had some back and forth on this. Is there enough distinction there that we can put, you know, put enough daylight between those two biases to develop the two chapters? And we thought, yeah, there is. But I, I think you're right. Loss aversion is, is arguably behind both of them. Uh, there are some differences with the status quo bias that are helpful to keep in mind and just some things you can do to mitigate it 
that aren't necessarily the remedy for negativity bias. And so that's kind of why we pulled them apart. And and the simple one on the status quo bias is just simply we rarely, when we're considering different options, we just assume away the status quo and we never subject it to the scrutiny that we do all the new options. And if we just simply did that, uh, put up the, the current, you know, our current uh, situation to the same uh, evaluation criteria that we are all the other options, then we might actually realize that what we have isn't necessarily the, you know, the bee's knees. And uh, so there are some simple things you can do there to kind of get past. Again, you're also starting at zero on, you know, below zero on status quo bias. You have this inherent conservatism there that uh, you have to figure out ways to just kind of blast out of yourself. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, I mean, all right. So, so we've we've dive we've dove into two. They're sort of interrelated. Let's talk about breaking through um, them. And as you said, it's it's a little bit different um, each one. But I think because they're sort of related, I wanted to d- discuss them in turn first, and then talk about how to break through them. Um, and and then of course let's we'll dive back into a few others. But let's talk about how to overcome those both the negativity. But also the I don't even want to get off the couch, so why should I bother trying bias? Oh, I'm sorry, status quo bias. I I just <laughs> I like to think of it as that other one. I like that language better. Can we use that? Is yeah. that fair? Yeah, we, I mean the book's already published, but you know in the second we'll, edition. No, we'll work something out. Yeah. Like it. Um, yeah. So negativity bias. We just say, look, you're going to go straight absent uh, any real effort. You're going to go straight to what isn't working in a new idea. So don't do that. Uh, because you can always do that. You can always It's always so easy to come back to that. So we'd say when new ideas come up, ask yourself, This is we call this the foreness approach. And so it's F-O-R-N-E-S-S. It's got a registered trademark because we're consultants. We have to come up with proprietary <laughs> language that we can put. Yeah, I, I wasn't going to hassle you about the trademark oh, no, no, we like the cover, model. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we, we, have a, we have a trademark quota that we have to hit. There's no four-box model in here, but beyond <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah, enough MBA school. Uh, <laughs> so we, uh, I, I, I paid my dues already. Uh, so what, what it says is when this new idea comes up, don't go straight to what isn't working because that's just, frankly, kind of cognitively lazy. Go first to what is working or what could be working and ask yourself what you're for. What do you like about it? And it's the insight here is that every idea is really kind of a compound of ideas. It has all these facets, all these little pieces of it. And so even if it's a horrible idea overall, you can still isolate some something in there. And we drive the point home with our clients when we do training with them by deliberately coming up, going to a different category so we can model the principle better and get them, getting them off topic of their own work. And we deliberately come up with an idea that is really horrible to make this very point. So what are you for? What do you like about it? What value could be there? Um, what benefit you know could come out of this? And then very importantly, what potential are you starting to see because you're playing with this idea now and you're just not dismissing it out of hand, which is you know very easy to do. And once you start doing it that way, once you start considering ideas for their provocative value, maybe more than just their immediate merits, then really cool stuff starts to happen. And every idea can really become this kind of multiplicative force. And and now I'm not being so literal to this one idea. I'm not building a shrine to this one idea. 
I'm simply using it for what I can to help me come up with even better ideas. And um, so that's what you're for, and you come up with, you know, seven, eight, twelve things that you're for in the idea, and now you can use any one of those pieces as its own starting point. You can even just make that idea now go away. That's great. You got some value out of it. You didn't yes, but it and just, you know, wipe it away, which would have been all too easy to do. Well, and I and would have looked smarter if I did it. Oh, of course you would have. You would have looked adult and businesslike and, you know, all that good stuff. Uh, once you've done that, then, your mind is actually in a much better frame to take on the problems with the idea. The, the very real issues. And this is, so this is not, you know, Pollyanna on a unicorn. You know, we're not recommending that. And so now it's saying, okay, now you can even take on the very real concerns about this idea. And if it's a really bad idea, hey, they're going to be a lot. So that's great because now the concerns can shine specific light on some areas for improvement. And once you approach it that way, instead of just kind of having this vague unease about a bad idea, now using language like I wish to, I wish for, how might we, what if we, now you're taking those, those problems, those issues with the idea, and using these sentence starters to start to push to solution. And even using these sentence starters just to push to entirely new ideas uh, as well, perhaps. Or, if you felt it's, no, there really is still enough inherent promise here that we really do want to tune up this one idea, then you can still use it that way as well. So either way, this overall mindset, this foreignness mindset, we believe is just a great overall approach. And what we found is that clients who really get it come back to us and say, we've just started to run all our meetings by this. And you can't just you can't just say I don't like this. You have to say what you you have to say what you wish for or how to or how might we, because I don't like it doesn't really contain a whole lot of information. Uh, I wish to or I wish for or how to or how might we, actually does start to push towards solution and starts to open up some real opportunity. And so we believe in, in addition to being a great creative approach. It's just overall, uh, we believe, a pro productivity enhancer because too many meetings um, on the client side I can remember. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, we don't al allow it to happen internally at Ideas Go. But too many meetings that I attended to on the client, while I was on the client side were spent in just kind of like shooting down ideas. And you get to the end of the meeting and you ask yourself, well, what did we truly accomplish? And other than having the very thin satisfaction of preventing some ideas from going anywhere, the answer too often is not very much. And we want that to stop because that's just kind of, that's not very smart. Yeah, yeah. And so, all right, so you hinted there, especially the importance of uh, solving this inside of groups, inside of discussions, inside of and changing this sort of lingo. Um, it's a good segue because one of the other biases that I wanted to talk about was uh, conformity bias. This idea that we sort of, you know, I kind of explored this a, a teeny bit. You come at it from a way different angle, which I think is awesome. But this phenomenon that in organizations, that the the nail that pops up gets hammered down, right? And over time, people learn like you just kind of have to get along, and people learn not to speak up. So, so we have these competing biases, right? We have this default towards sort of negativity, and when we do want to criticize, flipping that to a how might we. But then other organizations struggle with this issue of nobody is speaking up because we're all supposed to just play along. 
Well, yeah, and so it's it's being really conscious of where you are and what you're trying, what what questions are the most important questions at, at any given moment. You know, what what are we really working on? What are we trying to do? And so time and place really matters. What's the mission? So when you're, uh, particularly when you're doing innovation work, you know, conformity is, it's just, it's not applicable in the early part of it. It's, it's uh, it, you know, I was talking with someone a while ago, and I was trying to come up with a, a, an equally absurd metaphor, and I just thought, you know, conformity and innovation is a lot like courtesy and javelin throwing. Uh, it, it's just, you know, you just, hey, it's nice if the javelin throwers, when they're not javelin throwing, are courteous people. We don't require that of them while they're in the midst of javelin throwing. I mean, it's just kind of a, it's a non sequitur. And so conformity, when you're trying to come up with ideas, should really be about the last consideration on anyone's mind. And now it's on, it's on leaders to model this and make it safe. And if you're in a culture where there is this um, outsized preoccupation about conformity, well, holy smokes. I mean, that's a problem in and of itself, but it's certainly damaging to doing innovation, right, particularly when you're trying to diverge and, and trying to come up with lots and lots of new ideas. And then even when you're converging and trying to bring the best ideas forward, you're still dealing with different ways of doing it. Hey, we could try this, we could try that. You know, it's, it's iterative. And in doing that, if I'm always having to look over my shoulder or check the room temperature before I offer up a possibility, man, that's just that's an that's an awful lot of work. And so, if leaders can help establish this psychological safety and and can can model, you know, the right behavior and say, you know, this is what we're doing now, folks, and and. Uh, yeah, you know, there are times and places where more of a concern for conformity could maybe be really important uh, in much of innovation. Just be very, again, understand it's an instinct and that's your starting point and you might, you are unnecessarily letting it get in the way, whether you're a leader or a follower. So what we're not saying is be politically dumb uh, and be counter-dependent and be a brat uh, and <laughs> And look for opportunities to get yourself fired. Uh, but, you know, everybody, let's be a little smarter about this and understand that uh, conformity isn't, shouldn't be the biggest concern, at, at particularly at key points in the innovation process. You know, you said something in there, uh, a particular phrase that I want to unpack a, a little bit more because I think it's it has a role to play. It's not going to magically solve all of these different biases, but it, it definitely has a role to play in so much of it, especially as a group. You use the phrase psychological safety and the importance of leaders in creating an environment where uh, there is psychological safety, which I think is, is huge for confronting really any bias because coming out of or, or coming to terms with any bias is really a process of risk-taking and exploration and, and trying things that you might end up being wrong about. And if you're still afraid to be wrong, well then, I mean, negativity bias in particular is going to snap back. But if you're afraid of being wrong, a lot of these other ones, availability bias, uh, you talk about curse of knowledge, confirmation bias, all of these things are going to snap you back into not taking any risks. And so psychological safety becomes hugely important for encouraging the, that exact risk-taking behavior. 
it, it seems like the simplest exercise in the world to ask our leaders when they've been in situations of being psychologically unsafe in a work environment and how they felt and how their performance was affected. And, you know, like, is that something they want to perpetuate? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, again, the, uh, a lot of the work of management and good leadership is um, kind of exposing what should be obvious, but making the point of why it needs to be brought up and worked through. But yes, I mean, psychological safety is, if you're not uh, watching your own overt and uh, covert, I guess, as well as really like non-conscious signs, signals, behaviors that are contributing to, um, you know, psychological, I guess, danger or just, you know, not f people not feeling psychologically safe, uh, you, you need to get to work on that because you're, you're not getting the best work out of everyone. And, and more to the point, I mean, it's just life's too short. We spend too much time at work not to love it. And um, the leaders really, we know what from the research and just from experience, the impact that leaders have on that for everyone. So yeah, we have to we have to make sure that that we're we're modeling the right behavior as leaders in that regard. Yeah, totally. So um, as we wrap up uh, around all of these different biases, one one thing I want to stress, and this is something that I stress. Well, I don't want to stress it, but I want to lightheartedly emphasize this. Um, it's something that I talk about often, which is that when we talk about cognitive bias, we talk about something that afflicts everyone. Awareness of it is the first step, but you're never sort of going to be able to do away with it. So, so here's my question in the spirit of taking a lighthearted approach to all of this, Adam, which one do you struggle with the most and what, do you, <laughs> and, and what do you do to try and counteract it? Oh man, I love this. Oh, that's great. Calling me on my own stuff here, man. That's great. Well, it's um, it's a bit of a dodge to go to negativity bias, uh, but I think it's 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 kind of the master one. And and so I'll just give you the quick uh, from my own experience. I I believe in all this stuff. I got lucky enough to figure out that I could I could do innovation for a living. And so I, we raised our kids with that mindset and around the dinner table. It's fun to hear the kids play back now, you know, as they're older. You know, we would do innovation games around the dinner table and everything. And, and so they grew up with that. And I taught them foreignness. And so then when I would, in my non-conscious, in my less conscious moments, when I would yes-butt them, uh, they would say, Dad, you're yes-butting me. What do you wish for? And, and I thought it was unreasonable they wanted me to be consistent. Uh, and, and so I would just say only because it has such an effect on your own life as well as an effect on others, I, I think I, I'm always on the guard for negativity bias. Now, I'm a very like, constitutionally cheerful person. So you would think... That, uh, that that shouldn't be much of a problem for me. But this gets back to, no, it's, it's about being human. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned, like, Kahneman isn't overly um, optimistic about us really being able to overcome the cognitive biases. And yet, I mean, it's like what his career's been about. And, and I, I, I understand that because, of the, because it's so ancient and it's so nestled into our 
cognition and, and everything, uh, and because it carries the weight of so many generations. But I don't want anyone to use that as a cop-out, not to um, hold ourselves kind of accountable and, and really kind of in, and get to work on it. So I'll go with negativity bias, even though it seems a little obvious. No, I mean, that's that's fair. And like I said, this is the one I think uh, is is uh, we're, we're born with. It's in our DNA because, you know, the the ancestor who decided to be curious and check out that rustling in the bushes got eaten by a lion. But, the, right. but the ancestor that always feared that it was a lion, even when it was actually a little gopher, uh, they lived. And so we have their, right. we have their DNA, not the, not the other one. So, no, that's fair. Um, I think it's one we, we all sort of struggle with. So if that rung true to you or any of the biases that we talked about today uh, rung true, there's a book for you, Outsmart Your Instincts, How the Behavioral Innovation Approach Drives Your Company Forward. Adam, we already talked about you, so it feels weird doing that normal, let's transition to five questions about you because we're actually going to end up asking six. I just asked number one, but I guess we'll dive into uh, two through six if that's okay with you. Absolutely. All right. What's the best advice you've ever received? Another crystalline moment of insight, as if the heavens parted and the rays came down. Uh, when I was going to grad school in Indiana at, at IU down in Bloomington, I also managed a music store. And one of my one of my wonderful co-workers, a good dude by the name of Tug Beal, we were talking once about getting along with other people. And he just said, you know, Adam, you can get along with anyone if you'll spot them two character flaws. And I just remember in that second just going, that is so good. That I just so totally get that because I obviously could spot, you know, at least two character flaws in myself. Oh, so it's two different. Everybody's got two different character flaws. But oh, yeah, two allowance. different. Okay, yeah, I was, no, I'm was. i sitting here waiting for what the two are. <laughs> no, no, not the same two. Not the same two. Oh, but I like that. If you can spot everyone two character flaws. And so when they come up, you just kind of go, Oh yeah, cool. We're on. We're on track. Check. <laughs> well, and <laughs> that's know? and that's fair because I think if we, if you were to ask me, like I would want you to to look past probably more than two character flaws, right? Who doesn't want that? I mean, we're back to the uh, you know uh, you know don't 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 look at the speck in your neighbor's eye. You know, get rid of the log in your own, right? Totally, totally. kind of idea. It's, it's a basic injunction there, and it's and it's back to what Jonathan Haidt would call naive realism to some extent, right? And so I think that has served me so well, and I've easily told that story to 300 people. And so now I'm telling more people. So thank you so much, because no. I, I feel like I'm the conveyor of Tug Bill of Bedford, Indiana. I am the conveyor of that message for him. I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, what's an ideal workday look like for you? An ideal workday starts off with uh, a moment of clarity and um, really making sure i really believe in the idea of you know the kind of the one thing uh if i get absolutely nothing else done today but this one thing now it, it's rare that it that it can only be one thing but if i could only get one thing done today what does that what really should that be and the and ideally that is tied to mission and some sense of where i'm going and what my trajectory is and i don't want that to be you know, just based on a project I did last week, um, although I have all those things to deal with as well, but it, it's really making sure that, that, you know, we understand how, really how short that whole 
work experience is, and I say this now as, you know, a guy who hopefully I still have another good 20 years at this, but I'm starting to gain some appreciation for how just absurdly quickly it, it all goes. So the one thing, get at it, get out as soon as I can, have that sense of accomplishment and make sure that the, uh, the bigger picture is being um, adequately cared for and nurtured. And then the rest of the day is kind of, it puts it in the right framework for me and it's got the right context. And then I'm happy to take on some of the other, you know, the shorter term stuff. I, I, that's wonderful. And my test for if you're in the right work is to look at the very worst aspects of it and go, you know, just the, ask yourself if, that is, if that's what you need to do in order to do all the other wonderful stuff in that job, is it worth it? And if you can go, heck yeah, heck yeah, heck yeah, then that's what it's all about. Because to be human is to have problems. And so we, you know, we just have to kind of understand that that's part of the gig. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, what are you reading right now? I have uh, told as many people as possible and I think it's not only because it's kind of congruent with where we end up in our book, but we talk about the importance of humility. And it kind of occurred to me recently that uh, we really do need to rethink about how we talk about emotional intelligence because more and more demonstrations of intelligence without emotional intelligence look about as dumb as gypsum. Uh, and so I think humility is one of the, for me, one of the the cornerstones of emotional intelligence and ed hess uh and and his colleague um catherine ludwig at the university of uh, virginia at the darden school just wrote a fantastic book called humility is the new smart and it it just talks about how with the age of smart machines coming upon us how we used to think about intelligence and how we used to think about smart has to be rethought because not one of us can actually know more than a machine as this comes up. So we, what will new smart have to look like? And one of the key answers is, well, humility has to be a starting point for that. And I just, I was so excited to finish reading the book so I could start rereading it. Hmm. Wow. All right. That's a pretty strong endorsement. So we will, well, I will check that out myself. We'll also link to that in, in the show notes for sure. Um, all right. So besides spotting everyone two character flaws, what do you believe that you feel like most people don't? <laughs> um, that, um, that some of those intuitions different than insights or, or than instincts, some of those intuitions and insights that you had as a kid shouldn't necessarily be swapped out just because you've grown up. And when I think back to some of the things that really animated me as a kid, uh, I've always tried to make sure that I've protected uh, a key part of what I was doing, that a key part of what I was doing was still tied to that. And that seems a little bleak, but uh, I've been lucky that that um, I've always considered myself a creative person. I've never let anyone uh, get in the way of that. And and so just that the idea that in growing up we just have to 
you know, put away childish things, as, as we're told in an, in an important book. <laughs> Don't put away every childish thing. Uh, hang on to uh, hang on to the most essential part of that that really gets to the core of who you are. I like it. I like it a lot. So our final question, I guess question number six for you, even though we normally only ask folks five questions. <laughs> our, our final question, the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's perspective. And I don't know how to, as I'm talking about perspective, I, I don't know how the word love can't be uh, just right there with it. Because I think the right perspective necessarily uh, involves uh, great love and understanding uh, what we're doing. And we spend so much time at work that we, we need to make sure that we're, we're doing everything we can to contribute to this, um, this really just this great environment where people can, uh, can grow and can, and, and have, again, back having that sense of uh, psychological safety and that there's some really good rapport and that if it's uh, if it's merely transactional, if it's merely functional, we've uh, we've done something way wrong. I like it. I like it a lot. So sage advice, both from Adam uh, and from his rural Indiana compatriots. <laughs> um, I love it. So his the the new book again, outsmart your instincts: how the behavioral innovation approach drives your company forward. Uh, the author is Adam Hansen, along with uh, two of his colleagues from Ideas to Go. So you'll want to check out their company as well. Links in the show notes for that. Adam, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. David, thank you so much, sir. This was great. <laughs>